Robert Greenlease was a hard-working young man from the Midwest and was enamored with automobiles from the first time he saw them. He devoted his life to the invention, even creating the first five-seater automobile. It wasn't successful, but that didn't slow him down. The only thing that could deter him from his dreams of ultimate wealth and success was tragedy. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. The Kansas City Hummer automobile that Robert Greenlease created and built when he was just 21 years old did not make him rich and famous. But he didn't let that stop him in pursuing a life in the motor vehicle industry. He could feel it in his bones that it was going to be his life. In 1908, he went all in on a new automobile that was quickly becoming all the rage on the East Coast, the Cadillac. He invested everything he had into acquiring a franchise for the Midwest. The first Cadillac he sold was a one-cylinder, four-seat model priced at $800 that would go up to 30 miles per hour. The Cadillac was considered the finest and the most elegant ride, while also being dependable and was a draw for a specific higher-end clientele. Soon after, Cadillac was acquired by General Motors and the brand boomed. Greenlease along with it. Quote, he was not an unreasonable man, and he always tried to help people wherever possible. Robert was so completely honest. He believed a man's word, and his handshake was his sacred bond. He was a genuine titan in the automobile industry, and he never was sidetracked when he began his very long association with Cadillac in 1908. End quote. He was selling faster than the manufacturer could produce them, since he was one of the largest stockholders in the General Motors company, he even loaned $1 million back to the company so they could expand production. Robert would expand his dealership across the Midwest and then add a huge territory across the United States. At one point, he held the honor of selling the most Cadillacs than any other dealership in America. As his wealth grew, he invested it back into his community and several charities. His companies diversified and he became a very wealthy man. He devoted a lot of funding to children's charities and other local and national charities. According to his family's website, they write, quote, If generosity ever had a smile, it could easily have come from the likes of Robert C. Greenlease as his kind and genuine generosity toward the right things has absolutely no limits. Robert was, as they would say today, the real deal. End quote. Robert would marry Betty Rush in 1913, and they would adopt a son, Paul, who was born in 1917. That marriage sadly didn't work out, but he found love once more in Virginia Pollock. They were married in 1939. Two years later, they welcomed a daughter, Virginia Sue, and then on February 3, 1947, a son, Robert Greenlease Jr., who would be called Bobby. 
The family loved to entertain, especially around the holidays, and Robert was a devoted father and husband. He'd personally take his children to school and shower them with gifts. His family website mentions, quote, When Bobby was five, his dad surprised him on his birthday with his own mini Cadillac car he had custom-made by General Motors, the very first of its kind anywhere. Bobby would drive his little Cadillac up and down the long driveways and in the huge garages at his home. Just like his dad and mom, he had his own Cadillac, blue at that, end quote. Powder blue was supposedly dad's favorite color in the Cadillac collection. Some could say he had it all. Robert Greenlease was a very wealthy man. He had a home and a family, a thriving business, and was not only a pivotal member of his community, but was recognized for his business acumen, wealth, and generosity far and wide. When Bobby turned five, he was enrolled in the French Institute of Notre Dame de Sion Catholic School, located in the Hyde Park District in Midtown, Kansas City, Missouri. As I mentioned, even though Bobby and his sister, Virginia Sue, were cared for by nannies and a parade of servants, Robert insisted on taking his children to school every morning. His dealership was a mere mile away from Bobby's school. As Virginia recalls, Bobby was excited about going to school on the Monday morning of September 28th, 1953, because he got to wear, quote, his Jerusalem cross that was one of only two crosses awarded the week earlier to students who had done exceptional schoolwork. Virginia pinned this cross tied with its red ribbon on Bobby's jacket on his school uniform for all of his classmates to see and hopefully admire, end quote. At this point in our story, the family had just returned home from a trip to Europe. Bursting with stories, Bobby, who was usually a very congenial and talkative child, couldn't wait to get to school. On this particular day, around 11 a.m., Sister Morand would interrupt the classroom in order to escort Bobby down to the front entrance. They had just received word that Bobby's mother had suffered a heart attack while shopping, and her sister had come to pick him up to take him to St. Mary's Hospital. The auntie would later say, quote, the sister did say she was very sorry about Mrs. Greenlist being ill, and we both better say a little prayer. We did, and that is while the other sister was getting the boy. We walked right back out, and the boy was there waiting, and he came right up to me and took hold of my hand. End quote. When the sister met the aunt in the lobby, she held out her hand, and Bobby reached for it. She thanked the nuns and put her arm around Bobby's shoulders, escorting him to the door. She leaned down and whispered that they would stop for ice cream before taking him to see his dad. The nuns watched as the boy and his aunt slipped into a Toadman taxicab and drive off before they turned back to their busy day. It wasn't until about two hours later or so, one of the nuns called on Mrs. Greenlease to see about her condition. Mrs. Greenlease was confused about their concern, and it was then realized that young Bobby had been abducted. Robert contacted the chief of police for Kansas City, who then reached out to the FBI immediately, and from this moment on, the Greenlease family would enter the worst time in their life. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi Deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. 
I aggressively campaign to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. Bobby Greenlease had been kidnapped. The first communication with the kidnappers arrived special delivery on September 28th, postmarked at 6 p.m. They demanded $600,000 in 20 and $10 bills delivered in a duffel bag. The kidnappers promised Bobby's safe return within 24 hours of receiving the money as long as there were no tricks. The envelope was addressed to the wrong home, but obviously made it into their hands. The kidnapper, although, realized his mistake and quickly mailed a second letter which arrived on the 29th, postmarked at 9 p.m. To show validity, the kidnapper enclosed the Jerusalem medal which Bobby was wearing that day when he was picked up from the school. They reiterated the demand for $600,000 in small bills and added that Bobby was fine, but homesick. The kidnapper would say, quote, I called the Greenlease home on three or four occasions from pay stations in Kansas City area and talked with one man named Letterman. I told Mr. Letterman that Bobby would be returned safely if $600,000 were paid in tens and twenties, end quote. It didn't take long for the press to grab a hold of the story. The New York Times released on the 29th of September, the very next day after the kidnapping, quote, Boy 6, Kidnapped at Private School. Some of wealthy Kansas City family taken by woman who gave false story to nuns. The stocky, red-haired woman led Robert C. Greenlease Jr. from the French Institute. Hours later, the police had been unable to find any trace of the boy or his abductor. William Creech, a taxi driver, said he took the woman to a school and then was asked to wait, and then took the woman and the boy to a drugstore. The woman had offered to get the boy an ice cream cone, he added, but led him to a car in a parking lot, end quote. $600,000 was the largest ransom ever requested. Even the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, which only happened less than 20 years prior on March 1st, 1932, only demanded $50,000. The sum requested was very thought out, which we'll discover later. The police really didn't have any leads but the taxi driver, Creech, as mentioned in the newspaper article, but he did his best to be helpful. He described her as best as he could, retelling his passenger story. She was middle-aged, and the child did not seem alarmed at all. She had asked to be dropped off at Cat's Drug Store, but instead of entering, she went to a blue 1952 or 1953 Ford sedan with Kansas license plates. The kidnapper realized it was going to take them quite a bit to come up with such a large sum, even for Greenlease, 
So when he was ready, he gave instructions to leave a post in the personals of the Kansas City Star saying, quote, M, meet me in Chicago Sunday, G, end quote. He told how he called the Greenlease residents just to confirm the reality of the situation. He said he called and disguised his voice by using a handkerchief over the mouthpiece and said, This is M. The man who answered said, What did you say? His disguise was so clever, you know. The man tried to ask questions, and Carl only responded with, quote, $600,000, 20s and 10s, end quote. They asked questions of the welfare of the child, and he would only say, metal, then hung up. After Hall spotted the ad in the personals, he began the scavenger hunt for the green leases. He placed notes around Kansas City with red chalk markers to help them find where they were hidden. And so the game of cat and mouse began. The first set of instructions were just a test run. The kidnapper doesn't even know if they followed the instructions or not. He'd say, quote, I told them to put a white flag on their car aerial for 20 minutes and they were told to drive up and down Main Street between 29th and 39th Streets. I don't know whether they followed these instructions as I wasn't there and depended on the ad in the paper. I wanted to test them and made another call and talked to Mr. Letterman again and told him we'd try again, end quote. At the second note of the scavenger hunt, by the end of the day, M could see that it hadn't been touched. He called the Greenlease household and whoever answered the phone told him they didn't have the money in the home and left him a note instead. Fearing it was a trap, M threatened them saying a single word, tonight. The kidnapper sat back and watched the selected drop-off site when a black car came up, stopped, and pulled away again. M waited to make sure no one else came by or was hanging around and drove slowly past the site. He didn't see an army duffel bag as requested. He drove off only to come back by a few hours and still didn't see anything from the comfort and safety of his rented car. This prompted another phone call to the Greenlease residents to which they explained they went back and picked it up for fear the wrong person would pick it up. The kidnapper apologized, saying this was his mistake, and told them to go ahead and make the drop later that day, and promised he would deliver their son within 24 hours. Mrs. Greenlease pleaded with him to allow her to speak to her son. He, of course, refused. She asked that he answer two questions that only Bobby would know and to call her back. The kidnapper actually did call her back. He gave her the excuse that Bobby refused to answer, but that he told them a story about his pet parrot that whistled that would appease her. It was enough proof. They agreed to make the drop-off once more. On October 4th, the kidnapper called one last time. He had promised to call at 8, but couldn't get to a payphone until 8.30, and he apologized for being late. He gave instructions and told Letterman that he would receive a message from Western Union in Pittsburgh, Kansas, telling him where the child could be picked up. This time it was a go. The kidnappers in a rental Ford picked up the ransom bag that had been launched out the passenger side window at the beginning of a bridge. It was there, all $600,000. He hefted it up the small hill and put it in the trunk, then drove off. 
The final communication between the Greenleases and the kidnappers was a telephone call received at 1 a.m. on October 5, 1953 from a bar in Kansas City. The kidnappers had stopped there for celebratory shots. The kidnapper told him they had the ransom money and gave the Greenleases the next instructions on retrieving their child, promising that their son was alive and that he would be returned in 24 hours. The kidnapper would later brag to the victims by adding, quote, We got the bag and, hey, I might buy a Cadillac. End quote. But Bobby would not be returned. Bobby had been killed on the very same day he had been kidnapped. The Greenleases did not even have his body. The kidnappers got away clean with the $600,000. I have been getting a few questions about offering suggestions. First of all, absolutely, yes! I love hearing your ideas of what you are curious about. I am such a research nerd and I love learning the new stories for episodes. Second, here are some parameters so you get an idea if it's a good fit for this podcast. The topic needs to be based in America. The event needed to happen in America or played out in America. If it's about a specific person, they can be born elsewhere or died elsewhere, but the majority of their life or their contribution to the story needs to be based in America. Next, it needs to be set in the time frame prior to 1969. Yes, sometimes if the story is so compelling or so requested, I'll slip over, but I like to keep it pre-1970. It has to be something within our bag of bones context. For example, my mother keeps asking me to do an episode of Roy Rogers, but I can't because, well, his story is just so darn happy. Around here, we settle in with the dark and creepy, tragic and horrifying, throw in some peculiar traditions and folklore, and essentially you have the Bag of Bones podcast playlist. And finally, it must be based in fact. I put a ton of hours in research for each and every episode to make sure that I am giving you the most honest and up-to-date information for each subject. So if I can't find a lot of detail about something or I can't substantiate it, then I won't be able to use it. Yes, folklore can fall into a cloudy section, but usually with this topic, enough people believe it and there is a foundational source, like where the story began, that I can stem from. And that's it! I'll post these guidelines on both my website, elizabethbougeret.com, and at the ragtagnetwork.com for easy reference. Now, before you start sending me hate mail defending Roy Rogers, I love Roy Rogers. I also love all the other topics and dates and countries. I listen to other podcasts that cover all the things that I do not. But I had to set parameters, otherwise the Bag of Bones podcast would have been all over the place and not stand out in any crowd. But now, when someone asks, Hey, do you know of a great history podcast? Or, sure, there's a million true crime podcasts out, but what about the crime of the last century? Hopefully Bag of Bones podcast is on the tip of your tongue. Yes, your requests are most welcome. In fact, the first episodes of a new season will all be requested material. So hurry up and get yours in. Carl Hall was born into a wealthy family. 
His father was said to be a prominent attorney. Carl went to the same military school as Paul Greenlease as a teen. Carl was wild and rowdy and drifted away from his family in favor of a lifestyle that was not so strict and involved a little more booze. His parents had both passed away, leaving him an inheritance of over $200,000. He blew through all of it by the time he was 33. He had fallen back into petty theft and robberies until he got busted and served some time in jail for robbing several cab drivers of a whopping $38 total. After he was released, he found a job and shortly after found a girlfriend. Bonnie Hetty was about seven years older than Carl, but they both had the important things in common. They both liked to drink. In a matter of days, by May of 1953, Carl had taken up residence with Bonnie. I think I read that Carl was still holding down a job, but it was Bonnie that took care of the household financially and claims that the only thing Carl contributed was the booze. I'm not sure if she had a job or if she was living off an inheritance as she was from wealthy family as well. Bonnie would say at first she didn't know that Carl was a criminal or on parole, but Later, she discovered he had an apartment in St. Joseph to have his mail sent and for his supervision. He told her he couldn't afford to let parole officers know that he was living with her and without benefit of a formal marriage, as it would be a violation of the parole regulations. And she accepted those terms. While in school with the older son of Robert Greenlease, Carl became obsessed with the sheer amount of money the family had. He would admit to thinking about it for years. Even though he and Paul barely spoke two words to each other, you can bet he was on Carl's radar. And this would be all the way back in 1933. He had planned even back then to get his hands on that money. When he ran out of money and was sitting alone in prison with no prospects in front of him, his attentions turned to kidnapping the young son, and he began plotting. Quote, I knew the family was wealthy and that there was a small boy about six years of age and thought of kidnapping him for about two years and planned it on several occasions. End quote. He figured in one go he could be catapulted back to the lap of luxury instead of having to commit several small crimes over and over again. He believed that if he had chosen armed robbery instead, he would, quote, have to constantly repeat each crime with the probable danger of apprehension whereby on kidnapping, I could claim an extreme amount of money by one job and secure a great deal of funds, End quote. Side note. Also in May of 1933, Mary McElroy was the grown daughter of city manager Henry McElroy, also from Kansas City, Missouri, who was abducted. When the kidnappers told her that she wouldn't be harmed and would be released as soon as her father forked over $60,000, she laughed and said, quote, I'm worth more than that, end quote. Her father must not have thought so and renegotiated the terms down to $30,000. In less than 30 hours, Miss McElroy was released after the $30,000 ransom was paid. The press on the matter received national attention and perhaps what may have gotten the wheel spinning for Hall. Three of the four kidnappers were later caught and tried. The fact that Mary McElroy was released alive might have also influenced the decision by Robert Greenlease to cooperate with his kidnappers. Carl did his homework. 
He called and discovered the family was in Europe on vacation. He would drive by the home often and witness their usual routines, noting that Robert Sr. would take his son to school every morning in his favorite light blue Cadillac. During his initial interview, Carl claimed that he kept most of the details to himself. He didn't want Bonnie to know the bigger story, so began feeding her bits and pieces of a made-up history. He told her that Bobby was, in fact, his son, and that the divorce from his wife had been a messy one, with her taking everything and refusing him to let his see his own son. This way he could play on her sympathy and only have her get the boy from school. He'd take it from there. Bonnie would say, quote, Carl talked about his boy off and on. He told me about his first wife. He told me a lot of things about her, how they got along and how mean she treated him and everything, and I felt sorry for him because I thought he had a bad deal all the way around, End quote. She told the detectives he drove by the house in the hopes to catch a glimpse of his son. He hatched the plan for her to go into the school and pick Bobby up and bring him out. Quote, I'd pick him up at the school and he could spend a few hours with him. He said they wouldn't let him have him at the school because she probably warned him about her ex-husband, and he was very nice to him when we got in the car, end quote. In her confession, Bonnie would say the evening that she had taken the child, she made dinner for Carl at her home and recalls sitting around and watching television, working on getting blind drunk. She did not recall seeing anything about the abduction on the news. She assumed he returned him as he said he would. The next morning, Bonnie recalls looking at the morning's edition of the newspaper and seeing the story of the abduction. He assured her that he had everything under control and that the boy was still alive and just fine. He took her over to the window and showed her the freshly dug up area in her backyard and said he was so thankful she helped him see his son, he made this garden plot for her so they could plant some flowers. They decided chrysanthemums would look nice. So he took her to the store. They selected 12 plants and together planted and watered them. Bonnie was none the wiser. Eventually, she did question him about the validity of his story. Since every day the papers continued to talk about the missing boy, she wanted answers. She says he came clean. Carl stated that it didn't take much to get Bonnie on board with the plan of kidnapping. He'd say, quote, in her alcoholic condition, she was gullible, easily swayed, and would do anything for one more drink of whiskey, end quote. Carl would tell the detective that Bonnie didn't really know anything about anything. He would say that she was drunk or passed out at the most pivotal points. He said he had written the first ransom letter days before actually kidnapping the child and, in his excitement, would carry it in his coat pocket for around two weeks. Carl would randomly confess, quote, Bonnie Hetty never handled the letters and I never consulted her in any details tentative to the preparation of this or any other subsequent letter to the Greenlees family, end quote. But Carl would reveal there was a third kidnapper, Thomas Marsh. After Tom supposedly picked up the boy from Bonnie, Carl came back and picked her up from the plaza they scheduled to meet and he told her, quote, I had taken the boy back to school, end quote. But he whispered conspiratorially to the detectives what really happened, quote, I took Bobby Greenlease to Tom Marsh, 
and by prearrangement, Marsh was to take Bobby Greenlease to St. Joseph, Missouri, to the home of Bonnie Hetty. He told detectives that the child was alive and well and would be released the following Monday at Pittsburgh, Kansas, in front of the Bessie Hotel. He stated the child was with co conspirator Tom Marsh, who was in charge of the care of the child. When the child never showed up, the detectives came back around with a few more questions. Since there was no sign of Bobby Greenlease or Tom Marsh, they started to believe if Carl Hall did away with both of them. After a bit more encouragement, Carl would tell the police the plan was to kidnap the child and hand him off to Marsh. They had every intention of keeping the boy alive, but Marsh took matters into his own hands and killed Bobby Greenlease in the basement of Bonnie Hetty's home without her even knowing and left his body there for Carl to find and dispose of. Hall admitted to FBI agents the planning of the kidnapping, the actual abduction of the victim, and to burying the body in the yard of Mrs. Hetty's residence. He also admitted picking up the ransom money, but denied that he killed the victim. Carl would not admit to murdering anyone. Carl explained that when he saw the body, he was so surprised that he didn't know what to do. He immediately sent Bonnie off to town to pick up his dry cleaning while he dug a shallow grave in the backyard. When asked about the other blood drops, he told the detectives he was so nervous and kept picking up the body and moving it so Bonnie wouldn't see it. When she went inside and got drunk, as he knew she would, he brought the body outside and placed him in the grave. He cleaned up the blood using turpentine and gasoline in the basement but missed drops later found on the screen door and in the car and in other areas of the home. He says that Bonnie had no idea the child was even in her home. The next day, he'd tell her, quote, I told Bonnie to go buy some flowers as I wanted to set out a flower bed. Bonnie bought the flowers and I planted them in a day or so where I had buried Bobby Greenlease, end quote. Then that evening, he snuck away to mail the first ransom letter. Never the wiser, Bonnie slept through all the details in a drunken stupor. After several hours of questioning, both kept to the same story and told detectives they assumed Tom had retreated behind the scenes since he killed the boy, and Carl had not heard from him. And all of that, my friends, is complete bunk. All lies. Carl and Bonnie, despite being completely inebriated and Carl being high on morphine, they stuck to their agreed-upon narration for a pretty long while. But then, Bonnie buckled. She would tell the police she witnessed the murder of Bobby Greenlease. She had been there, and the murderer was Carl Hall. Take it from the top. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. 
So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! Following up on every aspect of their story, the police were sent directly to the home of Bonnie Hetty at 1201 South 38th Street in St. Joseph, Missouri on October 7th to see if the garden story was accurate. At 8.40 a.m., the police reported seeing fresh dirt turned over and new flowers were planted near the back porch. They hoped this part of the story wasn't fabricated. They dug down, and within three feet, they came across young Bobby Greenlease's body wrapped in a blue plastic tarp. An entire bag of lime had been poured over the tarp, and the empty lime bag was tossed into the grave as an afterthought. Quote, People were so moved with deep empathy and finally sympathy for the entire Greenlease family, and perhaps even more intensely once the news of Bobby's passing was revealed. End quote. With this new information, detectives went back in for another round to try and get the true story. It was not until October 11, 1953 that Hall admitted he and Bonnie Hetty transported the victim from Kansas City, Missouri to a point just outside of Kansas City in Overland Park, Kansas. Broken and betrayed, Carl shrugged it off and confessed to everything. He would break down in tears, saying, quote, it's true. It's true. That was the last glimpse of emotion the detectives would witness. There was no shame and no remorse, just the telling of a story. Bonnie, too, showed no remorse, and the thing bothering her the most might have just been the coming down from a hangover. In his interview, Carl would say, quote, I brought the subject up to her, Bonnie, and we talked about it several times. We began to make definite plans about three weeks before the kidnapping. Bonnie was with me in all the arrangements, end quote. The detectives would recall that her interviews were extremely difficult because of the amount of alcohol she had consumed, and in her report they had to add, quote, due to her admitted excessive drinking during the period from August 29, 1953 to the time of her apprehension, she might be hazy on the dates, hours, and places, but that she would make an honest effort to refresh her recollection. End quote. Bonnie would add, quote, I'm trying to help you as much as I can. If you had been drunk as long as I had, it does something to your brain. I just travel around in a haze most of the time. End quote. The actual kidnapping went down as mentioned before. We know thanks to several eyewitnesses. But after the abduction is where the story changes up a bit. Once the truth was revealed, the kidnapping duo were quite forthcoming about details, many you probably don't want to know. Hall later admitted Marsh was a fictitious individual and the only persons involved with the kidnapping were Bonnie Hetty and himself. Bonnie proudly admitted assisting Hall in the preparation of the ransom letters and notes of instructions to the Greenlees family concerning the payoff of the ransom. Side note. Since Bonnie and the detectives were BFFs now, she had a question for them regarding their investigation. She wanted to know if the FBI agents were able to identify her handwriting. 
She took great pride in her attempts to disguise her own handwriting and wanted to know if she had been successful. She had seen a detective movie or two, although she admits that the movies shielded her to the amount of blood a dead body would actually produce, but she wanted to believe her role was pivotal because so many crimes were foiled because the detectives could identify the handwriting. I don't know the answer they gave her, or if by this point they just stared at her blankly. Carl would claim his original plan was to take the body to the river and dispose of it, but changed his mind to the burial. When detectives questioned his line of thinking, he responded, quote, I was so excited, I don't know why I didn't go to the river with it, end quote. But Bonnie knows she would volunteer the insider view, saying that if anything happened to delay the ransom payment, the body might accidentally float to the top and spoil their plans. If the body was found before the ransom was paid, the jig was up. So cold, so clinical. The truth was, Bobby was killed the same day he was kidnapped. Bonnie, now unable to stop talking, would tell the detectives Carl intended to strangle the boy, fearing the report of the gun would be heard, so he brought an already cut piece of rope often used for backyard clotheslines. But when they drove to their secluded spot, she claims Carl said the rope was not long enough for him to be able to twist it, so he opted for the gun. And worse, the boy showed that he had tried and failed in this other method. Bonnie said, quote, I knew Carl was going to shoot Bobby, although he hadn't given us any trouble. Before I left the station wagon, Carl had to let the tailgate down and spread out the blue plastic sheet, end quote. Carl would add, quote, Bonnie got out and walked some distance away. I had the gun in my pocket. I pulled it out and I shot once, trying to hit him in the heart. I don't know whether it hit him or not, for he was still alive. First I tried to strangle him, but saw it wouldn't work, and that I had to shoot him. I shot him through the head on the second shot. End quote. When I got back, Bonnie would continue, quote, Carl had the boy wrapped in a plastic sheet in the back of the station wagon and covered him with an old comforter, end quote. When Bonnie walked back to the car after hearing the shot, she was shocked to find out the boy was still alive. She said he was moaning and there was, quote, so much blood. She'd say, quote, I'd never seen a person die before and that it was not like the movies and television shows, end quote. Carl Hall knew he was going to kill the boy from the beginning of the plan because he considered him evidence, and he needed to dispose of the evidence. Bonnie said, quote, We drove back into town and drove to Lynn's Tavern in North Kansas City where we stopped for a couple of drinks, leaving the dog and Bobby's body in the station wagon, end quote. Insert sarcastic, disgusted comment of your choice here. Once they reached Bonnie's home in St. Joseph, they went about burying the evidence as they referred to the child. Carl had the lime at Hetty's residence months earlier already knowing his plans, adding, quote, We had dug the grave the day before and put him in the grave, end quote. Filled with confidence that their plan was going smoothly, they set about contacting the family and setting up the drop. Carl would say, quote, I was worried because I knew Bobby Greenlease was dead, but I still tried to collect, and the final arrangements were that Mr. Letterman would place the $600,000 about 10 miles east of Kansas City on Route 40, end quote. 
Carl Hall and Bonnie Hetty were racing away from Kansas City to St. Louis, Missouri with a duffel bag full of cash in the back of the trunk of the rented car. They had stopped for shots to steady their nerves and made the final call to the green leases. Carl adds, quote, I told him instructions concerning the return of Bobby Greenlease would be sent out in the wire. I did not send the wire and knew that Bobby could not be returned because he was dead. End quote. They did it. They committed the perfect crime. They were rich. Side note, his request of $600,000 was the highest amount ever asked and received for a ransom at the time. He originally wanted to ask for a million dollars. Even he thought that might be too much. He settled on the sum of $600,000 in tens and twenties because it would end up weighing around 85 pounds and stuffed into the duffel bag would make it easy enough to carry and would be a subsequent amount to cover his needs for a long period of time. I did mention he'd been thinking about this for years, right? I guess after watching too many cop movies, Carl claimed that he was afraid to open the duffel bag containing the money. He feared that it was laced with some kind of chemical solution that would be transferred to his person and assist in his apprehension. But after driving for about an hour and a half, he could no longer resist. He had to know. So he went to the Western Auto Supply Store and purchased a plastic sheet. He wrapped the duffel in the sheet and set it out on the street before opening it, deciding that the chemical solution would get on the plastic and not his clothes or hands. Carl would say, quote, After driving about one half hour or hour out of Kansas City, I got out and looked to see if all the money was there. The duffel bag was full, end quote. After arriving in St. Louis on October 5th, they stopped off at a second-rate apartment. Having been drinking the whole time, they were both a touch emotional. An argument ensued. When Bonnie passed out on the bed, Hall placed $2,000 on the bottom of her handbag and took the rest of the money. He had no intentions of returning. Carl Hall hailed a cab that took him to Coral Courts. These were the kind of motels you could rent a room by the hour or by the month. The attached garages meant that the utmost privacy was there for their guests. Quote, I drove to a motel called Coral Courts and stayed, I think, in cabin 49A. I arranged to get a girl to stay with me through some cabbie and stayed with her overnight. I made arrangements for her to go to Los Angeles by plane and gave her some of the ransom money. I think I gave her $1,000 and I told her to do three things for me. One, mail a letter to an attorney named Barney Patton, end quote. He told his lawyer that he was planning to leave the country and ask that he care for his apartment and affairs while he was gone. And if it's driving you crazy, no, I never found out what number two and three were either. In fact, I probably just added that detail so we could all suffer together. After being suspicious of neighbors around the seedy hotel, Carl went and got an apartment on Arsenal and was waiting for his new best friend, the cab driver, John Hagen, to bring over a couple girls for him and his friend. On the way, Hall, under the influence, asked if Hagen would be willing to mail a package for him. Hall explained that it contained $500 as a long overdue payment for Patton's services for securing his parole in the Missouri State Penitentiary. Nothing suspicious there. And for his trouble, the cabbie 
and new BFF would be highly compensated. When Carl heard a knock on the door, he assumed it was his friend Hagen. It was not. It was Lieutenant Louis Shoulders and Patrolman Elmer Dolan of the St. Louis Police Department. The cab driver, Hagen, suspicious of all the money Hall was throwing around, told his boss, who then reached out to the police, alerting them that they might have found one of the possible kidnappers in the Greenlease case. Hall immediately said out loud, quote, The jig is up, end quote. But he knew his gun was safely hidden in a desk drawer mm, across the room. The two officers, following Carl's obviously paranoid lead, pointed a gun in his direction and told him he was under arrest. Two silver suitcases and a smaller briefcase filled with cash were sitting just inside the walk-in closet next to a dresser. Carl had divided the money from the duffel into the new metal trunks with the intention of burying it somewhere, leaving out enough money to live on while the search settles down. One of the officers patted him down and found his keys, removing them from his pocket. They, of course, opened the suitcases. One said, quote, Looks like you've got quite a bit of money here, end quote. Carl didn't argue. He was pretty drunk and admitted to have taken a quarter grain of morphine, but remembers being taken from the hotel room down to the police car. He also remembers these suitcases were left behind and was more bothered than that than being arrested. While being escorted to the Newstead Police Department in St. Louis, the officers remember Carl Hall was heavily under the influence of alcohol and morphine, saying he vomited and passed out frequently during the initial interview where he confessed to the kidnapping. Bonnie, lest we forget, was also picked up soon after Carl Hall threw her under the bus. The police statement would read, quote, a confirmed alcoholic found Hall a fit companion who shared her drinking activities and whose daily consumption was admittedly two-fifths a day, end quote. In fact, Carl would say of Bonnie, quote, she would be in a haze for days. She would drink at least a pint of whiskey before breakfast, end quote. He'd also say his only fear was that Bonnie was not, quote, getting the instructions through her drunken mind and would follow up things at crucial time when it came time to obtain Bobby Greenlease, end quote. They failed to come up with their $100,000 bond, of course. I mean, since all their hard-earned stolen money had been taken back from them, they were forced to stay behind bars back in Kansas City, Missouri, until the trial. Just to be sure, since the stories of Hall and Hetty were quite a whirlwind, on October 16th, two trustees from the Buchanan County Jail were instructed to redig the grave where kidnapped victim Bobby Greenlease was found. They were on a search for an additional body. They reopened the grave and dug down even deeper than where they found Bobby. Buchanan County Prosecutor John Downs was still hung up on the quote-unquote missing Thomas Marsh. He believed Hall might have used the single grave for the two bodies. While Hall confessed that Tom Marsh was a fictional character, apparently there was a real Thomas Marsh that served time in the same prison and at the same time as Hall that is now missing. There was no second body and no record of finding Tom Marsh. On November 16, 1953, Carl Hall, 
and Bonnie Hetty were tried and found guilty. After only one hour and eight minutes of deliberations, the jury gave their verdict. Fifteen minutes after that, Judge Reeves wasted no time in handing down the death sentence to be carried out on December 18, 1953. Judge Reeves said, quote, I think the verdict fits the evidence. It is the most cold-blooded, brutal murder I have ever tried. End quote. The pair who had declined to seek mercy at the trial also declined to appeal once they were convicted. On the day of their execution, a second chair was installed in the gas chamber so Carl Hall and Bonnie Hetty could be executed simultaneously. On December 18, 1953, less than three months after Bobby's kidnapping, Hall and Hetty were executed together in the gas chamber at Missouri State Penitentiary. Bonnie Hetty was the only woman to ever be executed in the gas chamber in Missouri. Carl Hall was pronounced dead at 12.12 a.m., and Bonnie Hetty was pronounced dead 20 seconds later. But wait, there is more to this story. Hang tight, and I'll fill you in on all the details. Hey everyone, I'm Katie Bougeret-Caldwell, creator of the Ragtag Network. The Ragtag Network is home to an eclectic assortment of podcast content such as Save Me an Isle Seat, Bag of Bones, Total Tomfoolery, and more. To find out more about us and the content we produce, check us out at www.ragtagnetwork.com. We look forward to your visit. By the time the couple was sobered up and pulled into questioning, there was a bigger problem. Half the money was missing. Arresting officers Lieutenant Lewis Ira Shoulders and Patrolman Elmer Dolan would be the first to be questioned. They would say they turned in the suitcase and the footlocker stuffed with more than $550,000 in cash into the station, except there were two footlockers and one suitcase, and no one could recall seeing them enter the second footlocker or suitcase into evidence. The theory is that after they brought Carl Hall in, Lieutenant Shoulders and Officer Dolan, who both just happened to need to run personal errands right after they booked Carl Hall, most likely returned to the dingy apartments, stole half the money, then brought the other portion, which was already less than half, into the police station through a rear door. Shoulders and Dolan faced charges of theft and perjury. Several officers and workers would testify that, yes, they did see Shoulders and Dolan bring in suspect Carl Hall, but that, no, they did not see them carrying anything else with them. Shoulders told the court the money was outside in the car, and he brought it in the station after bringing Hall into the station. Hall's statement, not that he's the most trusted of sources, contradicted theirs. Hall insists the money was left behind in the apartment when he was handcuffed and brought in. Carl was incensed at being accused for its loss. He'd say, quote, I do not know what happened to the rest of the money. I never did count it. There was supposed to be $600,000 in the bag, End quote. And, honestly, he didn't really have a lot of time to unload that much cash. His cab driver friend Hagen would testify to taking him for a drive where Hall brought along two trash cans and a shovel with the intent to bury the money, but ended up changing his mind, leaving the trash cans in an abandoned building. The department wasn't buying the story. Both Shoulders and Dolan were later convicted in federal court on a charge of perjury. 
Patrolman Dolan was convicted on March 31, 1954, and sentenced to two years. After serving his time, Dolan eventually received a full pardon from President Johnson on July 21, 1965. Lieutenant Shoulders was convicted on April 15, 1954, and sentenced to three years in prison. Shoulders passed away on May 12, 1962. After they served their sentences, both returned to live in St. Louis. They never confessed to the crime, and the money never resurfaced. But somehow, somewhere, only about $300,000 of the $600,000 was ever recovered. To this day. Paul Greenlease would follow in his father's footsteps and own a Cadillac dealership of his own on Main Street in Kansas City. He would marry, but have no children. He would pass away at the young age of 47. His older sister, Virginia Sue, would eventually marry twice, but also have no children. She would be remembered as being haunted by the loss of her younger brother for the rest of her days. She would pass away at the young age of 42. Robert would perish at the age of 87, only four years after Paul, leaving his wife Virginia to see all of her children die before she would be rejoined with them at the age of 91. She passed away in 2001. Bobby Greenlease was buried at the Forest Hill Cemetery in a family mausoleum on October 9, 1953. While the nation was caught up in the front-page news of the two kidnappers, a family mourned quietly at the St. Agnes Catholic Church. Archbishop Edward Hunkeler would offer these words of comfort to those who were grieving from the loss of this sweet child. Quote, Do you think that in God's omniscient presence, he can be less than helpful to you? God created Bobby through the cooperation of his parents. He took him into his fold at the baptism. In short time, his purpose was fulfilled. End quote. I want to thank you for joining me here for the brand new third season. I am grateful to your patience in allowing me to have some much needed time away from the microphone. And let me tell you, I am so happy to be back. I have a really great season planned for you with so many weird, creepy, and shocking episodes to keep up with what you've come to expect. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And please disregard everything I just said. I've been here the whole time. There's plenty of episodes to get caught up on and lots of different subject matter all under the umbrella of the dark history found in America. Extra special thanks to Barbara Bougere, who also happens to be my mama, for requesting this episode. She recalls the event and the headlines from her youth, but never really heard the whole story. I love how she doesn't really care for the majority of the episodes found here on The Bag of Bones, but still finds way to support and encourage me. And with that, we close out our first episode of Season 3. I can't wait to introduce you to some of the new things I've got lined up for you. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at 
www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.